My guest on this episode of Jim Questions Everything is Kayla Sims, a social worker and a counselor at Mountain Education Charter School based in a rural community in Georgia. Kayla works in a non-traditional school and is herself a non-traditional educator. What's unique about this school is that it runs an evening program designed for students that were not destined for success in a traditional high school structure. What's unique about Kayla is how closely she identifies with her students and the daunting challenges they face. Speaking about challenges, we also challenge my own assumptions about expectations for students in these settings. It's a fascinating and intimidating line of inquiry when you consider just how much our expectations are shaped by circumstances, poverty, race, status of citizenship, legacy. These all factor into expectations, and Kayla explains how this plays out in her school. We also talk about the assumptions that people make about resources, what should be available, and what happens in real life. In learning about Kayla and her school, I question my own approach to setting expectations and also the assumptions I bring with me. So I find myself asking, to what extent are my expectations about education grounded in privilege? And how do I stop making assumptions that are simply not reflective of what's happening in some of our poorest communities? Like every conversation I have with educators around the world, I'm in awe of their work and humbled by their humanity. And Kayla is no exception. So with that, here's Jim Questions Everything with Kayla Sims. Kayla, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start with a little bit of your background, beginning with the school that you work in. It's it's among the most unique schools that I've come across, and I'd love to learn more about it. Tell us a little bit about where you work. Okay, so I work at Mountain Education Charter High School. We are a public school in North Georgia. We serve 19 different locations throughout the North Georgia area. And what makes our school so unique is that we are an evening school. We are a regular public high school. You get a regular high school diploma, um, but we meet in the evenings, um, Monday through Thursdays. It is a totally voluntary school. Um, you can come um, as long as you live in Georgia. Um, like I said, we have 19 sites, so we're able to reach a lot of students that way. So one of the things that I thought was so fascinating was that it's an evening school. And I confess, mm -hmm. for all my time working in education, I just don't come across that uh, very often. Why an evening school? Talk to me about that. So a lot of our students are not the traditional high school student. Um, and that's one reason why they come to us, because they don't fit into the traditional high school environment uh, for one reason or another. But a lot of our students are 16 and older. Um, we go all the way up to age 21. And a lot of our students are working full time to help support their families. Um, maybe they have kids of their own that they need to work to support or maybe they work for um, relatives and they just like to be able to have that freedom to work full time. Um, so we have a lot of students for whom high school is not the first priority in their lives. Like I said, they may have kids of their own that they have to work school around. So whereas the traditional high school student, high school is the center of their lives. They're involved in clubs, sports, activities. Um, our students are not that way at all. Yeah, you're so right. I mean. When you think about the the classic high school experience, I mean, it is the start and stop of uh, of 
a young person's identity. And mm -hmm. what you're talking about is something altogether different, which is kids who uh, are in a variety of situations, uh, maybe who are young parents themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that you cite it not as a priority. And yet I can't help but think it's still really important to these kids because you mentioned it's a volunteer school. So this isn't like mm -hmm. the last chance high school. This is just right. an alternative. And I imagine that it being a, a voluntary place has meaning both for, for you, for the students and for the teachers. It does. Um, and we prefer the term non-traditional school, not alternative school, because around here, alternative school can kind of imply um, behavior problems. And that is not what we are. But our students come voluntarily. You know, they could go get a GED if they wanted to, but they don't want to. They want to get a high school diploma. So that means that they are willing to put that effort in um, that is needed for a high school diploma and to meet all those graduation requirements that the state requires for maths and for sciences and stuff, again, that you wouldn't have to do if you got a GED. Um, and for the staff, for the teachers and counselors like me, we know, again, that our students, their priority is not school, but yet they are willing to put this extra effort in. So we are willing to do whatever we need to do to help them be successful. And a lot of our students need that extra help, again, that they didn't get in the traditional school environment. So just, just people that are willing to meet them where they are and bring them uh, to graduation. I'm for sure going to want to talk more about the students um, and including what it means around here, because I, I imagine your the neighborhoods or the broader geography that you serve is something I'm going to want to learn about. But let me let me shift mm -hmm. gears a little bit. How did you find your way to this school? Oh, actually, what do you do there? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and how'd you find your way to this school? So I am a counselor and social worker at the at one of the sites. And I, it was weird because I am not originally from this area. I'm from more West Georgia. And I've, I've always lived in Metro Atlanta. And I knew that some of the bigger counties had like an evening program as part of their county's public school system. Uh, the county that I grew up in did not have that. And as a counselor there, I worked there for seven years. We desperately needed something like that. Um, and that's just not something that um, the district people were willing to do. And then I started working in another part of North Georgia and the mountain education site there actually met in our building in the evenings. And I, at first I was like, mountain ed, like, what is that? I have no idea. And the more I learned about it, the more I liked it. It's not something that's for everyone, certainly, um, just like traditional high school is not for everyone. But for those students, it can be such a blessing, not just for them and their lives, but for their families. Again, their parents who maybe have watched them struggle in traditional schools, maybe for their kids that they get to be home with during the day. Um, it can just do such great things for so many people. And so I had a baby. And so I was looking for a way that I could be home with my kids. Um, but also stay in um, the education field. And so I was lucky that I was hired at my site. Um, everybody works part-time. So it's a, it's a part-time gig for me um, that is very convenient for me. Again, you know, like school isn't the main priority of my life. My life, my main priority is my kids. So that's kind of how I fell into working here. And it just so happens that I love it. And I love what our mission is for kids. I, I, first off, I love that you talked about the preference 
in identifying as a non-traditional school versus an alternative, because really it's, it's not about uh, adjudicating kids who are at risk necessarily, although they probably do come with some risk factors. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. But the notion of non-traditional student, it just clicked for me that you're a non-traditional educator in your own right. Because mm -hmm. like those students, you have a changing set of priorities or schedule needs, or maybe mm -hmm. you just want to work in a different setting. And is that is that a fair statement to say you're a non-traditional educator in your own right? I think so. Um, one of the struggles that I had and continue to have with the traditional public high school systems around here is that they gear students towards a four-year college. And that's great for a lot of people, but it's not what everybody needs or wants. And that the discussion of two-year college or work, professional certificates, going straight to work, military, that's something that's left out a lot in the traditional high school environment. And a lot of our students at Mountain Ed are those students who don't want to go to a four-year college. Um, and maybe that's one reason why they didn't feel like they fit in in the traditional high school environment. So that's one reason that I think I'm the tradition, the non-traditional educator, but also I was that non-traditional student in the late nineties, early two thousands. I hated regular high school. I would have loved to go to a place like Mountain Ed, but again, it didn't exist um, back in those days. So I just had to stick with it. And finally I escaped. So in that sense, I know where these kids are coming from when they say, you know, traditional high school just isn't for me. I don't like the drama. I don't like, you know, the focus on football, whatever it is. Like I, I, I get that. Um, so I, there's kind of two levels to which I am the non-traditional um, educator, I guess. You really hit some keywords there. The the hyper focus on college. Um, mm -hmm. Let's be honest on football. I think wherever I go, I see high schools just obsessed with football. And even in my own local mm -hmm. community, I remember moving here, and a couple of years after the state football team was incredibly successful, and they had a police uh, escort for their buses, I think on a return trip mm -hmm. from some championship game. And I remember thinking at the time, do we not have police escorts for the debate club or for athletics or, you know, other really exceptional standout kids? And I, and I always, that always chafes at me a little bit to think mm -hmm. that we're, we're really, really obsessed. And I think, I think also in many ways, and I want to be a little bit careful because it's not inherently a bad thing, but I think the obsession with driving kids towards four-year colleges has some unintended consequences that we've, mm -hmm. we need to really consider. And it sounds like that's what mountain education is trying to do, which is to, I don't know, are you trying to in some ways validate the different paths along the way and help those kids see them as intrinsically as valuable as a four-year college? Don't think that was part of the initial plan um, because we do have our students that go to four-year college. Um, last year from our site, we had a student get into Georgia Tech, which is a very uh, competitive school around here. But I think that it just kind of happened that we attracted those students who were not part of the four-year college discussion. And the areas that we're talking about are rural areas, first-generation high school graduates um, a lot of times in their families. And so maybe there's never been a college discussion 
in the family, but maybe, you know, it's, it's totally fine to just want to do HVAC. It's totally fine just to want to do cos- cosmetology. Um, and you can go to technical college for that. You can just get some technical certificates and you can make a good living being a welder or whatever without having to worry about the four-year college. And that's something that is just not, not even mentioned in traditional high schools. But that's something that I think we have time and we have the student to staff ratios to actually sit down one to one with our students and say, like, what is your plan? Oh, that's so cool that you want to be an underwater welder. Let's talk about how we can make that happen. Whereas in traditional high schools, you know, you're one counselor for over 400 students. You just don't have the time to have those discussions with your students. You used a term there that's kind of interesting, which is first generation high school graduates. Mm-hmm. And you know, a, a lot of the education narrative is very uplifting around first-generation college graduates. But mm-hmm. I wonder if if there's this tendency to avoid talking about first-generation high school graduates, just kind of in general, at, at you know, say in in the media or in or in marketing for that matter. Uh, it's it is it does it strikes me that we're often talking about first-generation college, which is amazing, but there's mm-hmm. some other level of acknowledgement that needs to be made for for some of your kids who are actually whether or not they go to college they're first gen high school graduates so that's amazing and tell me have you given witness to kids who have played that role who have been the first gen high school graduate what's that like oh yes and I, I think the reason that we don't hear that mentioned a lot is because we, and when I say we, I mean the people that run, you know, the media in our country, which are upper, upper middle class white people, we forget that people that didn't graduate from high school exist. We forget that people who don't have a computer or internet exist in our country. We think of something, we think of that as something that happens in like a third world country. Um, we don't think of that happening to people down the street. My dad didn't graduate from high school just as an example, but I don't, it's, it's hard to describe the feeling when you have helped somebody and, and we just help. The student is the one that does it themselves. They make it, make a decision to do it. And maybe they stumble, maybe they quit at some point, but they come back. Um, but it's, you can't describe the feeling um, when a student graduates um, that not only are they the first person to graduate in their family, but they're a kid that traditional high school gave up on and we just helped them succeed. We helped them graduate and we helped them meet their next goal in life. The kid is so, so elated. And we are just so elated as a staff. Like there are no words to describe that. Yeah. Well, you, you did a pretty good job describing it just there. It's got got me really excited to think about the relief that that graduate must feel the pride Mm -hmm. that. Yes. The adults in that family must feel, uh, whether it's parents or caregivers. I just can't imagine what that uh, that deep breath moment must be like <laughs> when mm-hmm. when the tassel is moved from one side of that of the cap to another. Uh, that mm-hmm. is pretty amazing, and I love that you point out that it's the student who did the work. I have a feeling that you're being pretty humble in that regard, and I have a feeling that's probably true for a lot of the educators who work at your school that you really focus on empowering the student to, I guess, have agency in their own learning, their own direction. And what also sounds pretty compelling is you've got the structure right. So setting aside the fact that it's an evening 
schedule, which does allow for the students to focus on their priorities and still uh, go to high school. But you also mentioned that your ratio, so like your caseload sounds lower than you might find in a traditional high school. How important has that been to your own impact? Yeah, and that's part of the culture of our school too. I work at the second smallest site out of our 19 sites. Um, and we probably have uh, 68 students enrolled um, and I am one of the counselors. So it's been so refreshing to be able to work, again, work with the students on a personal one-on-one -on -one level. And we, we as a school pride ourselves on knowing our students by name, um, knowing who they live with, where they work, where they live, what their plans are after high school. Because again, you can do that when you have 68 students at one site, but then I, I can't even think of how many staff members we have. I know on any given night, we probably have like 20 staff members in the building. So it's, it's just, it's a different culture than a traditional school. Culture is a big deal right now, especially uh, as we think about schools working through COVID uh, between closures and all the stress of technology inequity, of food insecurity, mm -hmm. of just figuring out, you know, it was these folks in your school already figured out a non-traditional path, but, you know, they're probably not too far removed from being displaced entirely from the education process. Right. So it's kind of amazing that you have this educator to student ratio, this adult to teen ratio that is really working in their favor. I can't imagine what it would be like <laughs> right now. So um, you mentioned that you know who they are by name and where they mm -hmm. live. What kind of community are we talking about here? It sounds like a rural community, is that right? This is a rural community. Um, it's, a, it's very small geographically. Our particular site in our county is small geographically, um, but the the 19 sites that make up uh, Mount Ned um, can range from Metro Atlanta, which is a huge area in itself, um, but all the way to almost the Tennessee state line. So that's a huge area geographically. I can only speak for my site when I say that it's very rural. High speed internet is a new thing there. There is no public transportation. There's not a lot in the way of community resources. Um, it's one of those communities where everybody grew up there, everybody, you know, they're related to each other, they go to church with each other. A lot of our staff members work during the day at the local county high school, and then they work in the evenings at our school. And so they know the students from when they were in high school, or maybe even from when they were in middle school or junior high. So that it's interesting that you have that um, kind of longitudinal knowledge of the students. But it's also, again, we, we just have the ability to to know our students because of our small site size and our small geographic area that we cover. So again, it's, it's totally different. I can't like, I, I know I've said that before, but it's totally different culture from a normal suburban traditional high school. Yeah. I mean, high-speed internet is relatively new there, you said, which is <laughs> pretty wild. And the high-speed internet they, they do have when it rains, it goes out. So that's a, that's <laughs> an interesting thing. When it rains, it goes out. So yeah. it's tenuous at best. Yes. Uh, yes. Which is, you know, which is kind of interesting because, you know, on the one hand, I think we, I think we make all kinds of assumptions about rural communities, and probably a lot of those are, are uh, mislaid conceptions. Um, mm -hmm. But, I, but you know, the internet thing is really interesting because on the, you know, you've you've checked the box. Yeah, we have high speed internet, but 
doesn't do much good mm -hmm. if it goes out when it rains. So you really haven't solved a security. Uh, those kids don't feel secure in their technology access. Right. And that's just because of COVID, you know, a lot of our students have been working virtually and that's been one of the obstacles is maybe you don't have a computer. Maybe you don't have Internet where you are because these things still cost money. And if it's a choice between paying for Internet this month or paying for food, you know, what are you going to choose? You're going to choose food. Um, and I, I think that's something else that we upper middle class educators forget about some of our students is that internet is a luxury that is out of reach for a lot of people. Um, whereas to, to me, at least in my family, it's one of those necessities that we, we can't go without. So it's, it's been difficult. It's been a difficult transition. We, we take, we take so much for granted, don't we? I mean, I just, I took for granted that we would be able to have a, a zoom recording for this call and mm -hmm. it would be perfect. And so far the technology is, and it, it, if it goes out, it's, uh, absolutely a surprise but if it rains you kind of your community expects it to go out which is hard to wrap my head around and well you got me thinking about expectations you know expectations i guess on all levels are different based on your context on your socioeconomic status on what's available to you you know everything from expectations about internet to you know what you're going to do college. So when I talk to my kids, we live uh, with privilege and I acknowledge that. And that's part of the reason I want to talk to as many educators and experts from different walks of life to help me disabuse my uh, own preconceived notions. But, but in that, you know, I have to acknowledge that the expectations with my kids are not whether they'll go to college, it's where they go to college. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. such a different conversation than what's happening in the homes of your kids, isn't it? It is. And it's actually something like I talked to my husband about this. Um, I don't assume our kids will go to college, even though, again, both of us went to college. Um, I have three advanced degrees, but I don't assume they're going to college, whereas he does. Um, and to me, it's more about, you know, what is the right fit for you rather than, well, of course, you have to go to college. We're going to be embarrassed if you don't or you're not going to be successful if you don't go to college. So that's a conversation that, you know, we have in our own household, but is not even a discussion for our students. Like I said, um, four-year college is so inconceivable when nobody in your family has graduated from high school. So, you know, first things first, let's get high school done. And then, you know, we'll have the discussion about college if that's in your plan. And if not, that's cool too. We just, you know, priority one is graduating from high school. Sometimes uh, if you're, I grew up in a, adjacent to a, a very rural community and I saw some of this play out and I'm just thinking back to, again, this kind of notion of expectations. And I wonder if, you know, whereas I might have the expectation that yes, my kids are, are it just never occurred to me that they wouldn't go to college. So mm -hmm. I have to think about that a little bit and acknowledge all that uh, allows me to do that. But I wonder if in the, in the homes of the kids that you serve, are there different expectations about whether they should even bother graduating from high school? Yeah, that's actually a discussion I had with um, one of my students. Um, again, we are adjacent to a city that is the poultry capital of the world. Um, and in those poultry factories, there are a lot of undocumented people. And one of my students, he was older um, and he was trying to graduate. He already had a kid of his own. He actually told me that his dad would ask him, you know, why do you even bother going to high school? 
you don't have to graduate high school to work at the chicken plant. And that's all, you know, that's all his dad did. And that's all that was available to, to dad as an undocumented person. Now the kid happened to be a citizen, um, but still those misconceptions that were in the community about people with that skin color and with that accent. But he would tell me, you know, dad doesn't understand why I come. Maybe I should just quit. Maybe I should do what he says. And then, you know, to try to fight with that as an educator, it's, it's almost impossible. And unfortunately, that student did actually end up quitting school. Um, and now he's too old per state law to re-enroll. Um, I don't know what happened to him. But anyway, um, that is a discussion that happens in a lot of our students' homes. Who knows what happened, especially when you're dealing with all of the stressors surrounding your status as documented versus undocumented. Because mm-hmm. they, they and, and I have a little experience uh, with this in a former life, but you know, it's really important to fly under the radar. And so mm-hmm. sometimes this, what is perceived as an outsized pursuit of a degree means you're, you're putting yourself and now your family um, on the radar and maybe they didn't want to be there. And, and I'm, right. you know, that's hard. That must be hard for you as an educator because you can't, you can't win them all. And that's just got to basically yeah. suck. Yeah. And especially when, um, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who was working on his PhD. Um, and I said something about, you know, I just wish that people could divorce their um, personal beliefs from their professional duties. Not everybody can do that. And sometimes it bleeds over into their professional work, their relationships with students. There are challenges, aren't there, with with the mindset, around, especially around uh, students who are indigenous or uh, not born here or maybe first generation uh, or mm-hmm. students of color. Let me, let me, let me sidebar a little bit here. So I'm running for school board here in my community and mm-hmm. uh, we have a small suburban, mostly white school district of privilege. And I'm committed to running in part because I do feel like our school board and um, our district and our community as a whole has not really tuned in uh, in the way it should, I think, mm-hmm. to a lot of these uh, cultural issues of the day. And so here's what's interesting. A constituent in our community sent me a private message asking me about my opinion about transgender athletes and how and mm-hmm. what we should do to protect girls from uh, transgender students. She asked me about my view on critical race theory and Black Lives Matter. And it was very mm-hmm. clear based on her profile that she did not want our students talking about these issues, much less actually digging in, trying to understand them. And I, mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, on the one hand, it motivates me all the more to run so that we can have culturally competent teaching and instruction. And on the other hand, it, it scares the hell out of me that we have to, to deal with this. Uh, but, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you have to deal with that, even in a mission-driven organization like yours. Yeah, I mean, this is the Deep South. We are very conservative. We being, you know, the, the community as a whole, not necessarily me, sure. um, very conservative politically, religiously, and that makes it even more difficult. And I, I think I think the kids can tell. Like, you know, we, we always say kids know more than we give them credit for. But I, and I think they can tell who who's really. I don't know. I, I don't know how to phrase that. But anyway, I, I think they can tell. Well, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think they can tell. I think 
they have a certain kind of radar for authenticity that is really important. So I spent my first year and a half out of college. Uh, I opted not to go into teaching, but I worked with homeless teens in, in very urban settings. And it was really interesting. That was my, uh, that was when my bubble was really burst uh, in, in the best possible way. And in my own experience, I was really concerned with wanting to be liked, which was, which was not what those kids needed, uh, <laughs> interestingly. Uh, and they, they called me out on that. But they also, they called me out on it because they knew at times when I wasn't being authentic, when I was trying to say the thing that would get me liked versus the thing that needed mm -hmm. to be said. And I imagine even 25 years later, the kids in those situations, maybe not necessarily homeless, but, you know, are confined by socioeconomic status or other, you know, food insecurity, things like that. Like they get it. Mm -hmm. They know they're not dumb. Yeah. <laughs> they're not yeah. dumb. Oh man. So, so what's this year been like then? Are you back in school? You said, are, are you working this evening? Like, are you back in school? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I am working this evening. We, um, as a state started back, well, not everybody in the state, but most districts in the state started back face-to-face -face at the very beginning of the year, which for us is um, the beginning of August. Um, we actually, our school goes to school year round. Um, we have summer school, but anyway, um, we have been face-to-face -face with a virtual option since the beginning of this school year. Most of our students choose the virtual option. So it's been even more difficult to engage with these students who are already guarded and suspicious and secretive when it comes to adults, school personnel. But a lot of our students, we can't get on the phone. We can't get them to text us back. We can't get them to email us back. We're not allowed to do home visits right now. So we, we can't go and see them. So a lot of our students have dropped off and a lot of our students just, it, it's so difficult to engage them. So this, this year has been a big challenge. What are the different things you're trying to re-engage to win them back? We always have attendance incentives and um, incentives to finish modules and finish classes. So that's one thing we have continued. We also, we do feed our students um, dinner, supper, um, and one of the surefire ways to get kids to come in is to have um, a catered meal. Now, last year, before COVID, we would, you know, we'd have Chick-fil-A one night or we'd have McDonald's one night. We'd have Taco Bell one night. Um, the person that's in charge of our food would sometimes make grilled cheese sandwiches in the oven. Um, and we'd have tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches. I mean, we had good meals because again, most of our kids, you know, that's the only meal they're going to get that day. Now with COVID, everything has to be prepackaged. So if we have something different than, you know, prepackaged snacks, little uncrustables and stuff, then it's a special day. So we recently had a local restaurant bring food in and we had more students that night than I can remember having since before COVID. So things like that, just to kind of lure them in. And then once they get there, we can, you know, while you're here, let's talk about this. How, how are you doing? Do you have a ride up here consistently? Do you have clothes? Do you have enough food? Um, what about a computer at home? Um, we can check on all those aspects and then get them involved in their academics after we make sure, you know, physically and emotionally they're okay. Yeah, you're really addressing hierarchical needs. Just getting them fed to get them in is, mm -hmm. I think, I think something that so many of us take for granted 
who don't have to live with food insecurity. And that's, that's a real issue. I mean, I read a comment recently about the fact that a little more than a year ago, schools were willing to throw out lunches or withhold feeding kids who hadn't paid their bill. And then during COVID, mm -hmm. they were having, you know, grab and go meals. Anyone could come and get meals. So it, yep. it struck this particular person, and I, I agree with her, that it was never about whether or not a school or a community could fund these things. It was about whether they chose to. And I think that's... Mm -hmm. Boy, that's pretty heady stuff to think about. In in your case, you have a marketing issue in some respects. You have to market <laughs> because, you know, you didn't use channels that were different to let them know about the local restaurant bringing this food in. It's just mm -hmm. that's what that's what got their attention. You use, mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, social media and direct outreach. Yeah. Uh, it's just the fact that they had uh, this food option. God, that's amazing. Did you know that was going to be a yeah. thing for you when you took this job? Not COVID. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Not COVID, but like addressing the importance these of food. Issues. Food. Who knew? No. Um. No. I. I didn't know. I knew from working with. Before I became a counselor, I worked in child protective services, so I. I knew that it was an issue for a lot of people. Food, housing. Wondering if when you go home, mom's going to be there. She was deported while you were at school things like that. But I guess I didn't realize how widespread it would be. Do you think we, as a country, we just kind of miss the boat on rural education? I'm starting to feel that a little bit the more I talk to you, because I know my own, and, and you need to check me on this, but my own notions when I think about equity, when I think about disparity, I often move between uh, suburban and urban differences. But I just somehow... And this is a problem, and this is why I wanted to talk to you. I think I, I think I, if I'm being honest, I don't think about the rural needs enough. And, I, and right. I'm guessing I'm not alone, am I? No, and it's interesting. Um, I don't really think of us as a rural area. I mean, I know to a lot of people we are, but when I think of a rural area, I think of where we go every year on vacation. And a lot of the industry there is the same as it's been for a hundred years, which is working on the oyster boat and the fishing boats. The high school there, you know, they'll start with like 200 kids, freshman class. And then by the time they get to be seniors, they'll have like six or eight graduates. What? Because everybody else, I was told this by a teacher who I worked with, who had worked in that school system in the past. It could be different now. This is what he told me a few years ago. Because the kids know that, you know, if I'm just going to work on the oyster boats or the fishing boats, I don't need to graduate from high school. So I think it's a different, I think the, just the, the discussion that we have with, with kids, uh, my kids included, you know, again, it can't focus just on college. It has to focus on first things first. This is why we need to graduate high school. And it's not about passing your algebra class. It's not about writing the best essays. It's not about all those hoops you have to jump through. It's about work ethic, setting goals and meeting those goals. It's about all those things that your diploma says about you to a potential employer when you can say, yeah, I graduated from high school. It's not about saying you passed four math classes. And I don't think we have those discussions enough with our kids. That's interesting. What is it really about to say that you've graduated high school? And for some, you know, it's summed up in how they performed on the ACT or SAT uh, and what pennant they're going to hang on their bedroom wall for the school that they're going mm -hmm. to. 
Um, but for mm -hmm. others, it's about demonstrating that they can see something through to its uh, completion and that in doing so, they've demonstrated they're going to be good, reliable workers and citizens and neighbors. Mm -hmm. And yeah. isn't that pretty telling what we think of as far as expectations and what high school's all about? Yeah. What do you think the coming school year is going to be all about for you, for the educators and the kids that come back? I think it's going to be more of, for me, for making sure that those basic needs are met. Because again, you know, with COVID, people have lost jobs, people have lost, people have had to burn through their savings just to keep a roof over their heads. So I, I think it's going to be more about that. But also as we emerge from COVID, I think it's going to be more about the anxiety that people have related to COVID or related to going outside or, or whatever. And the lingering anxiety of, you know, just being cooped up in the house all day while mom and dad work, or you don't have a car, so you can't go anywhere. So you've just been at home by yourself. You've just been playing video games this whole time or something. What's that going to do to us? So, so that's what I think we'll be looking at for the next school year. Um, whether we go back 100% in person or whether we still have a virtual option. Your role as a counselor, you're going to have to really be leaning in on that anxiety piece. You know, I think it, when I talk to district leaders of all, all manner of school districts, social emotional learning is top of mind for so many of them. And I think mm -hmm. they went through a process last year of, of triage, like, okay, we've got to figure out how we get technology either up and running or better than it is to handle the shift. Close on the heels of that almost parallel was food. How do we get all of our kids fed to the extent that we can? And then it was continuity of learning. All right, how do we keep them? And I've got all kinds of opinions on how well we did on those fronts, some better than others. But one thing's for sure, the anxiety piece is real. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you see that. Does everyone, like, I believe you because I see it myself and I know others, but I also get this sense that some people are, I don't know, are they downplaying it or just missing the boat on this? I mean, what are you seeing in your community as it relates to student anxiety and whether it's going to get validated and actually, you know, supported? I think most people understand that it is a serious issue and it was a serious issue before COVID. So many kids that I've worked with for years and years say that they just deal with that anxiety. And that's why a lot of kids come to our school because, you know, it's not the 30 kids in a classroom. Like I said, you may be in these COVID days, you may be the only kid in a classroom. Even before COVID, we might have 10 kids in a classroom. Um, so it was just easier for them. But I think that this generation, and I don't know why, they have struggled with anxiety a lot more than previous generations. And I think a lot of people that have been in education for a while, teachers, administrators, whatever, have realized that and have realized how serious and crippling it can be. So I, I don't think it's anything new. You bring up a good point, which is the, these kids have dealt with a steady state of school shootings with mm -hmm. economic fallout at least twice. And just the last four years of heightened just intensity and like just anger that keeps to be, you know, at the surface. So to me, it does, it makes perfect sense why this generation of high schoolers is dealing with anxiety and, you know, flipping that around a little bit, one of the good things about this generation 
is, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like they're able to own it. They're able to identify it and own it and actually articulate it in a way that the generations prior were not empowered to do. There's got to be some hope in that for you as a counselor, the fact that more kids can actually name it for what it is. And is that, am I being too hopeful there? Well, no, I, I, but identifying it is different than treating it. Um, and again, in a, in a rural area, a lot of our kids are being raised by grandparents or still live with grandparents. And that's the generation that doesn't really believe in psychological um, problems or counseling or therapy. So just because we can say, yes, you have a lot of anxiety doesn't mean you're, you're getting the counseling or you're getting the medication or whatever you need to, to help get better. You know, this is a really good point. And I did it again. I, I applied some expectations here that don't have substance. And I have to be really careful about that, don't I? And, I? and I hope for those of us that are listening to this in the future, you go through this process in the same way that I'm trying to, which is, you know, on the one hand, I feel good about myself for being able to talk about these issues, acknowledge them, and look for some signs of hope. But you correctly point out, it's not that easy, Jim. Like, just because we identify it doesn't mean we actually can treat it because some of these kids are being raised by generations who refuse to validate it or, hey, we're in a rural setting or, you know, a comparatively rural setting with limited resources, limited access, literally like can't drive to a service even if we could get it. So once again, <laughs> I have to check my own assumptions about uh, these things. That's going to be a at the same time, like our our school just um, started a partnership with a counseling agency. We can refer our students and the first 200 students that are referred um, will get counseling for free. After that, they have to pay ten dollars and like I'll pay the ten dollars if the family can't afford it. But it's telehealth. It's virtual counseling, mm -hmm. which, again, you know, assumes that you have computer and Internet and even if you do have computer and internet, like as a counselor, I don't like doing virtual counseling. Right. I like to be face to face and virtual counseling is better than nothing, but like we still have a long way to go. We do have a long way to go, don't we? Around everything from expectations to assumptions to actual capacity to serve, but it feels like you're doing all the good work on the front lines there. Kayla, I'm so impressed with hearing the story of your school. I mean, it's it's 68 kids, but it's one of 19 sites across mm -hmm. the state, reaching from the large urbans all the way to the Tennessee border. And mm -hmm. along the way, you've done such amazing work. It's I'm I'm absolutely astonished at all the things that you have to deal with. So many of the which are so nuanced that that it's really important that I check my own expectations and assumptions about what's needed and what's available. I really thank mm -hmm. you for helping me understand this. Um, is there anything I didn't ask in trying to learn more about your work or the work of your school that I should have today? I don't know. Um, I don't, well, I, can I plug Perposity? Yes, plug, plug okay. away, go for it. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if you're familiar with Perposity. Uh, no, Perposity is an app that you can download. Um, and we, our school has signed up to use Proposity. And basically what it is, is I can put on there, I have a student that needs shoes in this size. And all you have to do is say, fulfill need. And you click the button and I order the shoes, you pay for them, and I give them to the student. Um, it's very, very simple. Our school cannot use it until we get, I think it's 250 followers. And our site, I think, 
has 60 something followers. So well, like we can't use it right now. <laughs> so if you want to follow us on Purposity, that would be a huge help because once we get our 250 followers, we can put student needs on there. And it may be like a, a $20 gift card to the gas station so that they can get back and forth to school. It may be shoes. It may be winter clothes. Whatever the students need, you can help us meet those needs. So that's one of our biggest struggles right now is how are we going to meet these needs? And luckily, we have a lot of staff members who are willing to meet these needs themselves. But if community members would like to do that, this is how that's how you can do it. So two things. One, I, I want to acknowledge what you just said, which is very typical of an educator, which is we're happy to do that. And for those of you listening who don't understand what that means is teachers are spending out of pocket money to fund things for their kids. And that's school supplies. It's probably the occasional meal or clothing mm -hmm. or the $10 fee for telehealth. It happens all too often to the hundreds of dollars. And you're probably going to do that when the Procacity app is up and running. So let's yes. make a pledge and start following Mountain Education Charter School. Am I saying that right? Yes, Martin, Mountain Education Charter High School. Each site has its own like page that you follow. Okay. You can follow all 19 sites. I don't, well, a couple of our sites do have enough followers to use it. But right now, I don't think anybody has enough followers, um, my site included. So it would be great if you could help. And, and just because you follow doesn't mean that you're obligated to help our students. You're Right now, you're just following. Well, we have to get to that magic number of 250 so that Mountain Education Charter High School can unlock supports through Procosity. So I have no affiliation with that app, but I'm very happy to give it whatever airtime I can to support your cause and all the good work you're doing. Uh, it's just And you may be able to find like local schools to you sure. on there. Um, I know a lot of school systems in Metro Atlanta use it, but yeah, it's a great thing. Well, it's a great thing. And the work you're doing is a great thing. I have to say, I mean, I guess it shouldn't be a surprise that you want to wrap up with a call to action to support some of the most basic needs of your kids who have chosen this path, this non-traditional path to completing their high school education. And while you can't win them all, and the occasional kid does opt out maybe to go to work at a poultry plant or because other pressures um, went out in the end, you and your fellow counselors, your teachers, your school admins are still putting in the hours each evening, four nights a week. So these kids can go on this non-traditional path. And it's kind of amazing that you, a non-traditional teacher, give of yourself so much to these kids. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you a hundred times. Thank you. I really appreciate time today and the work that you're doing every day, Kayla. Thanks so much. Well, I love it. And, and thank you for, for putting us out there because we non-traditional students, non-traditional schools need all the help we can get. Well, they're lucky to have you. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. Take care. Thank you.